Over the last several weeks, I've encouraged my listeners to send in their questions, and I will respond as best I can from the scriptures. Well, you asked, and I respond. I'm Mark Holt, and this is a Gospel Doctrine special episode. Welcome to the Gospel Doctrine Questions episode, and this is, because it's outside of the normal curriculum, this is a special episode, and I have been collecting questions now for probably about six weeks, and so I'm getting married tomorrow, and I thought I better get this episode out before I leave on my honeymoon, or else you might never see it. I know I would promised it by the end of the year. So, uh, here, here we goes several of your questions that I've received via email at gt at gospeltoctrine.com, and I'll respond to them one by one. By the way, uh, this doesn't mean, the fact that I'm doing this episode doesn't mean sh- you should stop sending your questions. I'm still happy to receive them, and I'm still happy to have them be about anything you want. It doesn't have to pertain to the lesson at hand, although I suspect most of them will. All right, without further ado, our first question comes from Fenn in Kennewick, Washington. Fenn says, I realize this is too late for the discussions on Hebrews 7 to 13, but after watching the video associated with the Come Follow Me lesson and viewing the video with the portal where they are transported back to Israel to perform a sacrifice, I was surprised when the priest offered him the knife to sacrifice the lamb. I always thought the sacrifice was performed by the priest. I can't seem to find anything on this in my research and wondered if you could provide some insight on the sacrifice itself. I understand placing one's hands on the animal's head, but was the sacrifice was the sacrifice performed by the priest? All right, so very good question. Thank you, Fen. And uh, so the question in a nutshell is, does the is anyone but the priest authorized to actually offer the sacrifice. Now, as far as offering goes, no, the priest is the one who has to offer the sacrifice on the altar, but does that mean the priest is the one to slaughter the animal? Uh, and the answer is usually, but not necessarily. So under the under the law of Moses, when you bring a sacrifice to the temple, uh, it, it's actually not 100% clear whether you are required to kill it yourself or simply allowed to do so. Uh, by the way, before I go any further, what Fenn was referring to, the video he was referring to, has a link. Uh, if you go to churchofjesuschrist.org and you look up the lesson of uh, the second lesson of Hebrews, Hebrews 7 through 13 from our last curriculum in uh, the New Testament, then you will see one of the videos that is referred to in that lesson on the church website has a man who goes through a time travel portal. It, it I don't believe this video was sponsored by the church itself. I believe they were willing to post a link to a video that a member of the church created sort of independently. But uh, first this man goes back in time, finds his younger self, and then takes his younger self back in time to the days of the tabernacle, and then they they uh, participate in a mosaic sacrifice. 
So it's a little bit interesting. And at one point, the priest hands the younger self of this modern man, they're both dressed in modern suits, and he hands this young man uh, a knife. And the, the young man is surprised at each point to realize that this lamb is going to pay the price for his sins. And so uh, that would have been one way to drive home the, the lesson for each family, for each man, for each woman, and be, by having them kill the animal themselves. Incidentally, under the law of Moses, it was required that a person repent before the sacrifice of an animal would have any effect on their sins. And therefore, sacrifice fulfilled a similar function that we would uh, try to fulfill today through the sacrament. We would go, we, we go to church, we, take, we partake in, uh, of the sacrament, we participate in this ordinance, and it's not the ordinance that forgives us, it's the grace of God that enables us to be forgiven. And that was obvious to the ancient Jews, those who were in tune with the Spirit as well, that it wasn't the actual killing of the lamb that cleansed them, it was the grace of God. It was something they didn't deserve. The lamb was just the means, or the sacrifice was just the means whereby they secured the grace of God. Now, uh, the, there were different sacrifices under the law of Moses. So, for example, the cleansing sacrifice uh, of a of a priest at, at the time of his ordination, that could only be offered and killed by the priest. And that's specifically mentioned in Leviticus chapter 14. But in Leviticus chapter 1, it says, you shall bring your animal to the priest and you shall kill it there. So if you read Leviticus 1, it actually doesn't clearly say the priest has to do it. It seems to imply that the, uh, that the offerer would be the one to kill the animal. Uh, in, in Judaism, there's a there's a tradition of what's called a shochet or the shochtim in plural. These are men who, because they're versed in the mosaic traditions around ritual slaughter and kosher slaughter of animals, they're the ones who are usually given this task. And in fact, uh, someone other than the family of the slaughter would generally not eat an animal that had not been killed by a shochet because they, they might be worried that it wasn't done properly. If the animal suffers, this is a very humane way, a very ancient humane way of killing an animal for food. And uh, if the animal wasn't killed according to the law of Moses, then there would be a concern that uh, it wasn't a humane slaughter and therefore the meat would not be kosher. And uh, however, before the modern, before this tradition had thousands of years behind it, uh, it was just an idea, and therefore anybody could kill their own animals. Women, in particular, were authorized to kill animals for their family, even if they were married. Um, the Paschal lamb, the the Passover lamb, is one specific and notable example. Women, uh, a mother or a father, could kill this lamb, could perform the ritual slaughter of this lamb that would become the sacrifice, but a sin offering, same thing. So uh, this video is actually correct, Fen, that the, the person bringing the lamb to the temple under certain conditions and certain kinds of sacrifices would be either required or at least authorized to perform the slaughter and thereby would be uh, given the chance to feel, uh, I think, part of the suffering of this lamb, or at least understand that they were the ones inflicting the suffering. And hopefully that would make it clear how much our sins hurt God. Thank you for your question. Next question comes from Nicole in Erie, Pennsylvania. And Nicole asks, 
a question about a temple ordinance. And so I'll, I won't read the exact words of her question, uh, although there's nothing inappropriate in what she wrote. But in order to be careful, I'll just, I'll just sort of restate and paraphrase her question. And she noticed that as she was uh, acting as a proxy in the ordinance of washing and anointing in the temple, that the oil used in that anointing was coming out of a little horn. And what she's wondering is, is there some sort of gospel significance to this horn and if that is used in all temples? Now, I can't, I can't comment on whether it's used in all temples, but I believe it probably is a standardized practice. I haven't noticed uh, oil coming out of anything other than a horn in the initiatories I participated in. Now, for those of you who uh, are not endowed, the washing and anointing is a is an ordinance in the temple that is similar to what happened with the priests in ancient times when they were qualified and set set apart to act to worship God to represent the people to act in God's name in the tabernacle of Moses and in the book of Exodus uh, Moses and uh, I'm sorry Aaron and his sons are set apart they're washed and they're anointed ritually to symbolize their cleanliness before God. And then anointing is one step beyond cleanliness. There are two classes of people who are anointed in the Old Testament, kings and priests. And it meant that they were consecrated to God, meaning they became gods. They belong to God, not gods with an S, but gods with an apostrophe S. They became gods. They were given to God. They were consecrated to him. Uh, This is actually related to the last question. One thing I didn't mention was the the hand being placed on the lamb's head before it was killed. Uh, a lot of people think, and, and this there is some truth to this, that that was a means of consecrating the lamb. So you, you make this lamb belong to God and then you kill it. But it was also a means of transferring your guilt into the lamb. Uh, so I, I believe that there's some interesting questions that could be asked about that. So for example, um, most of the ordinances that we perform by the power of the priesthood, they're symbolic. Baptism is the most obvious example. It says in the New Testament that when we are buried with Christ into baptism, then we will be raised up with him uh, into his resurrection. So baptism is a symbol of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A symbol, and and if uh, if you go back on our, I believe it's our second lesson in Matthew. Anyway, it's Matthew chapter 3. Uh, where Christ is baptized, I talk about all the different things that baptism symbolizes. But there are many, there are many ordinances of the priesthood that have some symbolic meaning. But one that we don't talk about very often, and I've never mentioned, I, I believe, in the podcast, is simply laying on of hands, ordination, setting apart, etc. The only mention of laying on of hands, or the only non-blessing uh, mention of laying on of hands, is this one, where a person would lay their hands on an animal prior to sacrificing it. And the, the this meaning of this action was to transfer guilt for sin as well as to consecrate it unto God. And so it may be that the modern ordinance of laying on of hands has some reference to Old Testament laying on of hands of an animal about to be sacrificed. Um, hopefully, it's not to transfer our sins unto the person being blessed, but perhaps to transfer 
some of our holiness or our uh, worthiness or our blessing in the priesthood onto the person being blessed. That may be the symbolism there. I've never seen any church doctrine about the, que- the question. So back to, sorry, Nicole, for that divert, uh, digression, but back to your question. Is there significance to the horn in the temple that this oil comes out of? And the answer is yes. Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, Samuel is commanded by God to fill his horn with oil before going to find David and to anoint him to become king. And then it says at the end of, or at the end of that section, the first part of Samuel 16, he's commanded to do that. So he, he fills his horn with oil before he leaves. That would seem to imply that Samuel had oil that was already prepared for the purpose. Now, I don't know that, I'm sure there are people out there who do know because there are people who have to do it. I don't know what the consecration process is for oil that is used in the temple. I do know the process for oil that is used in the healing of the sick. I imagine there is a consecration ordinance on that oil, but I can't say for sure. Uh, in any case, Samuel had oil already prepared. He took it with him. He didn't just use any oil. Uh, so there may have been some consecration process involved. He took his horn of oil, and then it says uh, when he anointed David, he poured out his oil from the horn. And Zadok, the, the high priest under Solomon at the end of David's life and then under Solomon, his son, in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 39, uh, that is how Solomon becomes king as well. He's anointed by a high priest from a horn. It mentions it specifically. The, the priests would often use a horn as a musical instrument. It's called a shofar. You can look that up. But shofars could also have uh, they, if they had a hole pierced in the bottom, then they could be used as, as an instrument, but then that hole could also be uh, an outlet for a liquid contained in the horn. And so it would have probably been a similar uh, horn used either as an instrument or as a vessel. And sometimes you even see a horn referred to as a vessel uh, in the scripture, in some translations of the scriptures. So the the horn, what does a horn represent? The, first of all, I don't see a commandment from God that oil should be kept in a horn anywhere in the scriptures. But I do see that horns are used as symbols of whenever you see a horn show up, either in a vision or a dream or uh, mentioned by a god, the the horn represents power and, and sometimes even victory. So the visions of Daniel come readily to mind. The animals that he saw, they have seven horns on their head, meaning a complete amount of power. They're perfected in their power or in their dominion, their glory, and at times even their ferocity. So an animal, a wild animal, that's a wild animal's weapon, is the horn. It's their means of defending themselves. It's their means of protecting what is theirs. And that is what a horn symbolizes. So a a priest carrying a horn that has consecrated oil in it would be symbolizing not only the, the holiness of that consecration, but the power of God itself. So uh, there is some evidence. Uh, if you there's a book called the Navu Endowment Companies, that if you look in there, there's some mention of uh, men and women being anointed prior to their endowment, uh, as far back as the the early saints of this dispensation. So it's a it's been a practice to to pour the oil out of horns from uh, the early times of the restoration. Thank you for that question, Nicole. Okay, our next question is an anonymous question. This question, what is your favorite scripture? (laughs) And so, a personal question for me. Um, And I think 
maybe if you've been listening a long, a long time, you might be able to guess, but my favorite scripture at the moment is Ether 12, 27. Uh, and I've mentioned it many times. I think that a lesson, there's so many lessons in the scriptures that try to state or that try to teach what Ether 12, 27 states explicitly and very, and very clearly, which is that our weaknesses are given to us by God so that we can be humble. And uh, so I'll read that verse to you right now. And if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. I give unto men weakness that they may be humble. And my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. And uh, as I've mentioned a few times, if you were to do a just a search, a simple search in your gospel library app for the word weakness, you would come up with so much valuable information on how God feels about your mistakes and the things that you struggle with. Uh, prophets have and apostles have struggled with things very similar to what you're dealing with, and the way that they saw their weakness was or the way that they approached their weakness was similar to the way we approach it. And the answers that they received were very surprising. It was that God has given us these things and he wants us to find in our weaknesses, he, want, he wants us to find strength in him. God does not condemn us for, for our weaknesses. In fact, they're his gifts. Uh, very, very profound thought. There is so much more I could go into there, but that's why, that's briefly why that's my favorite scripture. But uh, to answer this question a little more completely, I wanted to uh, talk about scriptures that have been my favorite in the past or that are close to the, my favorite scriptures and so, or that, I, that I'm quite fond of. And another that was my favorite scripture for years is Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. And this is the story of the two disciples who are on the road to Emmaus, the day of Jesus Christ's resurrection. So Jesus Christ appears to them and says, what, why are you talking and sad with each other? And they tell him, you know, we, we thought Jesus Christ was going to be the Messiah, but now he's dead. And he says, why are you so slow of heart to believe? Don't you think that the Messiah should have suffered these things to enter into his glory? And what Jesus does at that time is he bears testimony from the scriptures to these two suffering disciples. Later on, they see that he, the identity of Jesus is revealed to them and they, and they see him for who he truly is and then he disappears. But to me, the interesting part of the scripture, the, the inspiring part, is that Jesus could have borne immediate witness of who he is by simply appearing to them and showing them a portion of his glory. And he chooses not to. Instead, he chooses to bear testimony from the scriptures. To me, the lesson is that that is the more powerful or at least the, the more blessed testimony of Jesus Christ's resurrection. Uh, so it, it may be that he wanted to give them the opportunity to receive blessings by accepting him without seeing him or, or understanding the nature of his resurrection without seeing evidence of it. Or it may be simply that he knew that it would have more power to talk to them about the many testimonies that had been given of his uh, of the necessity for his resurrection than it would to actually see evidence. I love that because you and I, we don't have, well, maybe some of you do, I know that I don't have opportunity to see the risen Lord, or at least I have not yet. 
but we do have opportunity to read every word, probably every word that Jesus read to these ancient disciples about his resurrection. We can receive the same testimony that they did about the the reality of our risen Lord. And to me, that's so powerful because what it says is it's it's the message from Jesus to all of us that we really have everything we need to believe in him and to know that he lives. And that's why I love that one. Two or three more I'd like to share with you. A uh, couple of my, the, the next two chapters are going to be very familiar to you. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 31. So verses 31 through 34 is Jeremiah saying, I'm going to make a new covenant. Right now the covenant is the Mosaic covenant, but the days will come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with my people, Israel, and they will, they will all believe in me. No one will have to be taught of the Lord because they will all know me. And I will write my law in their hearts, and they will change. My people will repent in that day. So I'm, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but uh, what God was saying through Jeremiah at that point was that in the future, uh, God will actually accomplish his work with us. And to me, that is such a, a method, message of powerful hope. It means that in spite of all of the ways in which I have fallen short in trying to follow God, uh, that God will accomplish his work with me. I am part of this new covenant if I choose to be, and I do choose to be. And therefore, uh, my, my repentance and my offering, imperfect as it is, is enough for God. He has already promised that he will accomplish his work with me. Along that same line is a similar passage in Ezekiel chapter 36, the latter half there. And God says basically the same, same thing. He says, there will come a day when I'm going to take the heart of stone out of my people. And this is a, this is a powerful uh, symbol because the tablets of the commandments, the, the Torah, the law, the Ten Commandments were written on tablets of stone. And what God was saying was, your, your obedience to me is centered in these commandments, in these laws, but I'm going to replace your heart of stone with a fleshy heart. And what that means, it's very similar to what Jeremiah said, that I will write the law in their hearts. What God is saying here is that I will replace your, lo- your love of having everything spelled out for you with a love of just a simple love of me and a desire to find me in everything you do. And it's not I that have to do this work. God will do this work inside of me. That's the promise of the scriptures that I've just cited, that God will do this work. And so I don't have to be perfect in figuring out exactly how it is that God is going to replace uh, my love of myself and my love of my own priorities with love of him. I just have to let him do it. He's the one who knows how it is to be done. That's why I love those two scriptures and I cite them frequently. The final one that I'll talk about, uh, we just we just mentioned yesterday in our lesson about uh, Revelation chapter 21. So Revelation 21 verse 4 reads as follows, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither, sh- neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Now, I, uh, I talked a little bit about what this might mean uh, uh, as far as regarding the law of opposition in all things, that there must be some modification to that law or else this blessing couldn't come to pass. I don't know exactly what form the fulfillment of this scripture will take, but it provides me with so much hope when I think, okay, when, uh, what is heaven going to be like? 
what does it really mean that there will be uh, an abundance of joy, meaning that our joy will be overflowing? How will it be so different from just trying our best here on earth? And what I read in this verse is that there will be a fundamental change in the way we find fulfillment in obeying God. It will be much, that burden will be much lighter on us. And somehow we will change or the world will change or the fact that we are redeemed from the fall will change the whole process. And it will be so much easier to find everlasting joy. This, the idea that God will wipe all tears from our eyes uh, is so powerful to me. As a personal side note, I wanted to mention uh, a poem that I wrote. In fact, it's a hymn that I wrote um, with the, uh, alongside my fiance, tomorrow soon to be wife, uh, Kendra. And she wrote the music, I wrote the words. And I, um, I've never mentioned it or read it uh, on the podcast, but I wanted to read it to you all. Um, and, it, and it contains an idea from this verse. And I, I just, before I do, I want to say I would not have been able to write this had I not been, uh, or let me put it another way, I've been prepared to write, I feel like I've been prepared to write this poem by the fact that I've been teaching this podcast. And so the, the title is, Christ is Come, Shout Hosanna. And the first verse is a, uh, is a statement of the, the joy that people must have felt seeing Jesus enter Jerusalem at the time of his triumphal entry. And the second verse uh, expresses what people felt before Christ came in the Old, in Old Testament times when they all they had were prophecies uh, when God would come into the world. And then the third verse is a, uh, a statement of the joy that we'll feel one day when Christ comes again. And each verse highlights, at the climax of the verse, it highlights a specific name of God, given to Christ, a name of God. And uh, so it's the third verse where uh, the, this idea from Revelation chapter 21 uh, comes in. So I'll, I'll read you those three verses now. This, and we submitted this to the, to the submission process for the new hymn book. So Kendra and I have our fingers crossed that, that uh, hopefully this will get accepted, but, but I'm sure whatever happens that the worthiest hymns will be accepted. Anyway, I'm rooting for this one. Christ is come, O shout a hosanna, to Jesus Messiah praised and adored. Raise your palms and lay them before him, who comes in the name of our blessed Lord. He is David's son, Israel's promised one. He will save Jerusalem. Among us to dwell came Emmanuel, holy savior from Bethlehem. Verse two, those of old who worshiped Jehovah, wise ones and prophets, God did attend, showing them his sojourn among us, how in the flesh he would condescend. In a lamb's price and a sacrifice was a type of how he'd be crowned. They drew near unshod, for the lamb of God turned their mountains to holy ground. And at last, in a day and an hour, unknown to angels, hidden from men, those who watch will rise up to meet him, when in the clouds he will come again. Oh, how we'll rejoice when we hear his voice and see heavenly hosts fill the sky. Evermore we'll sing to the King of Kings. He will raise us with him on high and wipe tears from every eye. So hopefully that uh, gives you some indication of my different scriptures that I love from different uh, standard works. Thank you for that question. Our next question comes from Peggy in Spanish Fork. 
And uh, Peggy says, that she, she makes a, an apology that it's off topic, but Peggy, I said you could ask a question about anything. So there is no such thing as an off topic question. Uh, she says, when I saw the verse in Numbers 19 about the red heifer, it sounded familiar like I'd heard something about that before. So I Googled it and this is what I found. So uh, Peggy mentions a, a news article that she read and the, the fact that we were discussing how, um, and, th- and this was recently when we were talking about the sprinkling that occurred in Ezekiel chapter 36, when uh, Ezekiel was saying that when all the nations, uh, maybe it was 37, but when all the nations return to me, I will sprinkle them with water. And what I talked about was the, the water of purification or the water of separation. And the way it's created is by burning a red heifer and then using its ashes mixed with water and, and uh, according to a ritual. Then this water could be used to purify people. They would become ritually pure to enter the temple. Now, the belief in modern Judaism, uh, at least in this particular tradition, is that a red heifer is only a red heifer if it has no more than two hairs on its entire body that aren't red. Every other hair has to be red. So a red heifer, a true red heifer, was finally born. And the belief of the people writing this article, this news article, was that there had not been a red heifer born for 2,000 years. So they saw in this uh, a, a manifestation of God's blessing on the idea that they would soon be able to rebuild the temple, uh, what would be called the third temple. The first temple was the Temple of Solomon. The second temple was the Temple of Zerubbabel, which was then expanded on by Herod. So Jesus lived during the second temple period. That was destroyed by the Romans in the first century. And uh, then there has been no temple since then on the Temple Mount. And the Jews believe there's no other place where a temple can be built. And they believe that in order to build the temple, they have to have this water of purification. And therefore, a red heifer is required. And because there has been no red heifer, there's been no possibility of rebuilding this temple. So, uh, this obviously, this interpretation of what's going on depends an awful lot on their traditions. First of all, they are not necessarily in possession of the defining facts that determine what a red heifer is. Secondly, uh, as we know, many aspects of the Law of Moses have been superseded, and temple worship today does not take the form that it did before Jesus Christ came into the world and died for our sins. So that I would say there isn't a whole lot of eternal significance to the fact that this red heifer was born. Uh, I would say that I think it's interesting that there, it shows you that modern Jews are also like modern Christians. They're looking forward to an end time. They want there to be a third temple, and they, uh, they predict that their Messiah will arrive for the first time around the time that that third temple is built, or perhaps he will direct the people of, of uh, Israel, the, the nation of Israel, the, the Israelites, however their descendants is made known, he will direct them in construction of that third temple. Uh, it tells you that they believe this, but I don't personally believe that this red heifer will be used to make water of purification and the fact that it appears has any eternal significance in the timeline of the end times. So I hope that answers your question there. But it is an interesting one, and uh, it, it shows you that it, it shows you that we have some things in common, even though uh, there are certain things we don't share. The next question I have is from Charlie, and Charlie did not 
include a city, but uh, she she asks and uh, she asks several questions. The one I'll choose for this podcast is um, I'll paraphrase it like this: What is poetry in the scriptures? I make I mention poetry a lot in the scriptures, and she asks, "What is poetry in the scriptures, and how can we recognize it?" Uh, that is such a powerful question, and it's one. It's it's interesting because it's one without an exact answer. So you will notice that many times uh, I'll say this is a what we're reading here is an actual poem found in the scriptures, or Paul wrote this poem, or uh, the book of Isaiah is almost completely made up of poetry. Now, there is no scientific definition of poetry, even in English, right? So uh, if you look at some what are, what are called free verse poems, you will notice that they are often distinguished only from prose only by the fact that they're arranged in a specific way on the page. Uh, there is no other way where you would look at it and say, this is a poem. Now, when you read it as a poem, it takes on a significance that it doesn't if you read it as prose. When you just read something as prose, you, you go through it quickly. It's just sentences and uh, when you take it and you put the words on a page in a specific order, or if you put them in lines, you capitalize the first letter. Or in free, in the case of free verse, if you, you know, if you put one on the left side, you put one in the middle, and then you put two words together, then they can take on a, a, a significance that they wouldn't have had if you don't see it as poetry. That's a long way of saying that sometimes, uh, well, let me put it this way: poetry is in the eye of the beholder. That being said. There are certain telltale signs that most scholars have used to ascribe the property of poetry to ancient writings. In the case of the Hebrew scriptures, one of the biggest characteristics is parallelism. So when something is repeated uh, using slightly different words, when, when the same concept is, is told twice in a row, or the same teaching, repeated one right after the other, then that is an indication that the author has engaged in the composition of a poetic structure. And that's just by convention today. They may not have thought of this as poetry when they were writing it. Nevertheless, modern scholars and in several traditions have taken to insetting what they consider to be poetry within the larger text. Uh, and one of the ways that you can find out whether or not a book, uh, a particular passage is considered poetic is by going to biblehub.com and then going to the passage you're talking about. You may find your, your default translation might be the King James Version, and therefore you won't see any indication that a particular passage is poetic. But then if you select another translation, the NIV, for example, the New International Version, then you'll notice that they offset those. Uh, the Good News Translation is another one where I know that they they offset them, they offset poetic passages so that they're indented, they're given line structures. Each parallel construction or each uh, aspect of a parallelism, each particular expression of a parallel idea will be put on a new line and given that method of setting it apart. Another Another example of a poetic structure in the scripture, so that's mostly in Hebrew, uh, in Greek, in the Greek New Testament, we, we see a few times holdovers from Hebrew where something is, is expressed 
in a parallel way, and that is an indication to us that the original author was either writing or thinking, at least, in Hebrew, and then translating either on paper or in his mind into Greek. Um, but another example of, of poetry in Greek is what's called a doxology, which is a hymn of praise. And there's one of those in the, uh, in the Lord's Prayer. At the end of the Lord's Prayer, you may remember that we talked about the Lord's Prayer having a couple of different versions. The one that we have preserved is, uh, it follows a very specific format. It actually is very internally consistent. But then at the very end, it says, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And that's a, that's a brief doxology um, that does not appear in every translation, in every manuscript, I should say, of that particular book. I think it's in the book of Luke. And the uh, so every version of Luke, every existent, extant manuscript of Luke, in, fa in fact, all of the later ones have it, but the earlier ones do not have that doxology. I mentioned that not to make a point about the Lord's Prayer, but just to um, get across the idea that you already have an example in your mind of what a doxology is. Paul has several doxologies throughout his epistles, these short hymns of praise that are very poetic in their structure, and they usually take up two to three to five verses and, um, and express the idea that God is above all things and, and are a means of Paul getting across to us the awe he feels at the glory of God as he teaches about him. So that's the long answer to your question. The long answer is look for parallelism, and a, a specific um, type of parallelism is what's known as a chiasmus. We'll talk a lot about chiasmus as we get into the Book of Mormon. Uh, look for doxologies, but also if you're, if you're curious about any particular passage, you can go on biblehub.com. And the short answer is, Charlie, it's just a judgment call. Do we think it sounds poetic? And generally, scholars have to have some agreement before they say, yes, something was intended to be a poem. We try to guess whether or not the original author intended it to be a poem. That were they, and a poem, if you've ever written one, you have to sit down, you have to, you have to carefully choose each word and sometimes each syllable. And so I get, my guess is that scholars have attempted to uh, guess from the text whether or not the original author was doing that. And so what you will see in when a particular passage is indented in, in the translations on biblehub.com that I mentioned, when you see that, then you can know that some scholars have agreed that that particular passage was originally intended to be poetic. Thank you for that question. Here's a question from my intended, Kendra, from Sandy, Utah. Thank you for asking this question, Kendra. Uh, we, she and I were having a gospel discussion, and the topic, the question came up, why do bad things happen to good people? I don't know that, and I include it here. She didn't specifically want it to be included on the podcast, but I include it here because I don't think there's any more common question of people that is, that is posed by people who are struggling with their belief in God. If God is real, and, and that if is your indication, uh, is your first indication, if God is real, that you, you've got to examine your thinking. Um, because it's usually followed by, if God is real, then how can he prove it to me? The assumption underlying that if is, and I don't, I'm not saying that Kendra has this or that any of you have this, but the assumption underlying this if is, that 
God has the duty to prove to me that he exists. This idea was contradicted by a talk that I've referred to a few times called Choosing to Believe by Elder Whitney Clayton. And what he says is you're not going to accidentally believe. Most of us are waiting to accidentally believe or to be coerced into believing or manipulated into believing by God or by circumstance. And what Elder Clayton said was that you're not going to accidentally believe any more than you're going to accidentally pray or pay tithing or obey any of the other commandments. You have to choose to do it just like you've got to choose to obey anything else. When you see belief in that way, then you realize that God isn't he, he's not bound to make us believe or to prove anything to us. Um, this, this is going to be such an important concept as we start to study the Book of Mormon. Because there's one thing that's true about the Book of Mormon that's not true about the Bible. And that is reasonable people can question its provenance. Um, now, you, you may believe, you may be a skeptic about the Bible and you may say, well, I don't believe that the Bible was an inspired record. But I can't argue that the Bible is an ancient record. There is no disputing the fact that we have these old manuscripts of the, of the New Testament, and we have the Masoretic texts, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have uh, a few surviving manuscripts of the Old Testament. We know how old they are, we know that people used to believe them, they have, it has a long history of being regarded as a sacred text. Now, the Book of Mormon has internal claims that it was regarded as a sacred text, or at least parts of it were. So, for example, the, the parts of the, the, the Book of Mormon that were transcribed from the plates of brass, they're referred to as already having been revered in the time of the people writing it as sacred texts. But the evidence that we have today, because we don't have the golden plates, and we don't even have a transcription of the golden plates. We don't have a, a facsimile of the, the original golden plates. Uh, all we have is internal evidence within the Book of Mormon itself, and this has been disputed since the early days of its publication. The, the claim is that Joseph Smith fabricated the Book of Mormon either from whole cloth or uh, by drawing parallels from the geography around him, from other similar, quote-unquote, similar books that were written a few years prior. Uh, he, took, he took very prominent ideas that had uh, prevalence in the time and area that he grew up in, uh, one of the ideas being that Native Americans were descended from the tribes of Israel. And so that's the idea. And the simple fact is that this has not been proven to us, and therefore we get to choose whether we believe it. Now, I'll say more about that as we get more into the Book of Mormon, but I just wanted to draw that parallel because when we, uh, when we look at the things that happen to good people in this world, then we have a question like, could a loving God allow that to happen? And the simple fact is God is not going to prove to you that he's a good God before you have to believe in him. You simply get to choose whether you believe in God or you don't. Now, the answer to this question is actually quite simple. But simple does not equal easy to understand or helpful. What people want when they're suffering what is not a simple answer to, is God real? But what, they, but what they really want is, how can God help relieve my pain, my suffering right now in this moment? 
So what we try to answer is the question, does God exist? Or how can I believe that God exists when these bad things happen? But that's not really the question that people are asking most of the time when they ask this question. Sometimes they are. Sometimes it's simply a philosophical discussion. It's entirely intellectual. But even in those cases, people usually aren't open to the answer. Uh, so in other words, I'm, I'm trying to explain why the answer that I'm about to give you is not going to be as satisfying as you might hope. Why do good things, why do bad things happen to good people? So the, the reason we ask the question is because we would expect, the, the, the expectation underneath this question is that good things should happen to good people. I was doing good things, God. Why, did, why was I cursed? Why was I not blessed? That question arises out of what's called in scholarly circles the myth of religious fulfillment, the idea that if I follow what I believe God wants me to do, and if my idea of God is correct, then therefore I should be spared the suffering that is occurring around me. If you want to hear more about this myth, uh, you can go back into the Old Testament lessons that we did a year and a half ago and read uh, the read our podcast episode on, or I'm sorry, read, listen to our podcast episode on the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, Ecclesiastes, you might remember, is purported to have been written by Solomon, but uh, it's over and over again is repeated this idea that all is vanity. And when something is vain, it means it's useless. The way that this has been translated makes us think this is an entire uh, this is a completely pessimistic book everything is vain meaning everything is useless really what the author of ecclesiastes was trying to convey was the idea that everything is ephemeral the the word translated as van- vanity could better be rendered everything is vapor everything is transitory everything is temporary everything is ephemeral And so we can't count on the fact that we are being obedient to God. This is the message of Ecclesiastes. We can't count on the fact we're being obedient to God to protect us from the vagaries of life. The simple fact is we live in a fallen world, and the nature of that world brings suffering to each of us, brings challenges to our faith, to our assumptions about God, and we have to make choices. I'd like to say, this is one way I like to express it. Uh, if it's too easy for us to believe in God, then he's going to throw something in our path to make it harder. We, we, uh, we exist on the knife's edge of a choice, meaning uh, God is going to make this standing place for us where we don't make a choice, our little pathway. He's going to make it so narrow that eventually we can't stand on it anymore. So as a kid, I used to like to walk on walls. I grew up in Las Vegas and the the yards were separated by cinder block walls. And I loved to climb up on the wall of our house and I could walk almost all the way to school, briefly jumping down onto the street, running across the street and then climbing up on the neighbor's wall. And I think they probably thought, who's who's this little seven-year-old boy walking along my walls? And you know, the dogs were barking on either side and I would walk along walls to school. And I called it my shortcut, although it'd take me several minutes longer to get to school that way. But I got to where I could run along these cinder block walls and everybody thought it was an amazing act of balance, but they were probably 10 inches wide. I don't know how wide a cinder block is, uh, 
So imagine yourself running on this cinder block wall, but then uh, the cinder block wall gives way to maybe a, a, a narrow brick wall, and as it sometimes did, and I'd have to balance along it with my arms out to either side and walk slowly. And then imagine that it is a, a picket fence where the, the pickets are maybe an, uh, half an inch wide, and so you're balancing very tenuously. And then all of a sudden, you're on a tightrope or a high wire, and then, like I like I said earlier, you're on a you're on a knife's edge. Once you get onto a knife's edge, it's too narrow for your feet to endure. You have to choose to drop down on one side of the wall or the other. So the the metaphor that I like to say is God is going to put us on a knife's edge of belief. He's going to make it harder and harder to remain undecided. We have to either choose to believe in Him, or we're going to choose that we don't believe in Him. And each of those choices has its implications and has its assumptions that goes along with it. And then it has its effects on our life and how happy we'll be. So if God is going to bless me, then he better show it. He better come to me now and make it easier for me to believe. But what really is going to happen is God is not going to make it any harder for you to believe than you can overcome. But he's not going to make it any easier than you need in order to earn the blessings that he wants you to have in the life to come. One day, all of our works, all of our thoughts, all of our choices are going to be laid bare before everyone that we ever knew and everyone that we ever will know. And at that moment, we can either be vindicated by our choices or we can be ashamed of them. I believe we'll both, we'll, everybody will experience a combination of both. But everyone who enters into the rest of God, at some point, it will be made plain that we have chosen to believe in God in spite of resistance against that idea. And so when resistance comes, recognize that when you choose to believe in God, that you are earning blessings that will last forever. So why do bad things happen to good people? The answer is for the same reason that bad things happen to bad people, because bad things happen. Some of the, Sometimes it's from choices, but sometimes it's just the nature of life. You know, if you get in an accident, somebody may have been negligent. But if you get cancer, it may just be that that was what was in the cards for you. And did God do it to you? Did the environment do it to you? Is it just one of those things? Those are difficult questions without good answers right now. But we live in a world where bad things happen. Bad things happen in order to put us on a knife's edge. This is not a comforting answer. It does not help somebody when they're suffering from cancer to hear that the nature of life is to put us on a knife's edge where we have to choose to believe in God. So make sure before you give this answer to someone, make sure that you're really answering their question. Their question might be, how can I believe in God? I want to believe that God will relieve my suffering, that he will be here for me. And I can't right now because it's so hard what I'm going through. The answer then is believe in God because I'm here helping you. And God is the one giving me strength to do it. That is something that I think would have a great effect on someone who's suffering. So if you're, if you're trying on an intellectual level to believe in God, then hopefully this answer was helpful. And if you're trying on an emotional level to believe in God, then reach out to somebody who does believe in God and say, can you help me believe in God? I'm suffering. I need someone to love me. And that is the way that that question should be answered, recognizing first what, what place the person's coming from, who asks it. Thank you for that question, Kendra. 
Our next question comes from Tanner in, from Denver, Colorado. Uh, Tanner says, I've been listening to you for the past six months now, and I've really enjoyed what you've done and the insights you've shared. My three questions. Have you heard of the Chosen TV series about the followers of Christ during his ministry? If you have, have you thought about reaching out to them and possibly working with their writing team? I think you'd be able to add valuable insights to the story they're telling. And if you haven't, I'm smi- you can hear me smiling, uh, Tanner, not because I'm laughing at your question, but because I'm very flattered. Uh, number three, if you haven't, then you should look into it. Have you ever considered being a writer for a show like that? All the episodes are free if you download the free app. Every podcast of yours that I hear, I think you should help be a writer for The Chosen. So Tanner, thank you for that question. I'm very flattered. Uh, my answer is uh, I did actually spend um, years of my life as a fiction writer. I, I'm an unpublished writer, but I've written fantasy novels. And I think this would be quite a privilege. Uh, as far as I know, the way shows like this work is I've, I've worked a little bit with uh, as, a, as an executive producer for film projects. And I studied film in college. And uh, so as far as I know, they don't go after writers. Somebody needs to apply, and uh, so I haven't. I haven't reached out to anyone from the chosen. I don't know if they'd be interested. But uh, writing for a TV show would obviously be the dream of any writer. So I would love that. I don't know if I could fit it into my schedule, but I, I'm sure that I would really love it. And uh, so, if anybody knows anyone who works for the chosen, put me in touch. I'd, I'm very flattered. Thank you so much for that question, Tanner. Uh, our final question comes from Michael. This is Michael M I C H A L which uh, if you have read your Old Testament, you'll know was the name of one of Saul's daughters. And uh, so it's a female name. So thank you for your question, Michael. Her question is, Mark, you mentioned in one of your recent podcasts that wisdom in the Old Testament refers to a separate entity. In my limited research, I came across Proverbs 8. But as I researched more, many people seem to say that is referring to Jesus Christ as the separate entity. Many references used in 1 Corinthians 1.24 to support that. 1 Corinthians 1.24 But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That was a quote. I did find at least one person who said that the Lord of the Old Testament was Jesus Christ, and therefore wisdom was a separate entity from him. I would love to dive into this deeper and would love any references or suggestions you can send me where I learn more. So, wonderful question. I have mentioned Lady Wisdom or Wisdom with a capital W. So, first of all, understand the idea of wisdom as, as it's personified is, is a metaphorical technique. It, it is a bit hazy exactly how distinct the ancient Jews believed that wisdom was from God. So, we've talked about the word or the logos, uh, and, and I'll draw a parallel from this idea. But, but first, we'll talk about the Logos again. So when John says in John chapter 1, he says, The Word was with God, and the Word was God. I've defined the Logos for you on a few different occasions as that aspect of God that is capable of interfacing with people, that is capable of being understood by people. So is it a separate entity, or is it part of God, or is it God himself? And it's just, we're describing the, the face, that, the mask that God can put on that, ha- that looks like a person, right? So that's, that's the question. What did they believe about the Logos? What did the concept of Logos encapsulate for the ancient uh, Jews and then the Greeks that followed them that, that used this word? So that question, we don't have to answer it. Posing it is enough to recognize that what we have here is an analogous question about wisdom. What does the wisdom of God describe? Does it describe uh, another God? Now, now Jews would have uh, considered that to be heresy, 
the idea that there was a completely separate entity. So they saw wisdom as something that was distinct enough from the general idea of God to have its own name, but it was, an, it was an, also an aspect of this being that they worshipped uh, that was inseparable from God. And therefore, it was, it was part of God, and yet it was specifically distinct from the general idea of God. So that being said, uh, where I, rather than answer this question completely, I want to point you to where you can find a, uh, an answer. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a few things about it. So uh, as we did with the second half of Revelation, we're going to go back to the fall of Adam and Eve. And we're going to discuss what happened when God created the world. So uh, Adam and Eve were given an instruction not to, take, not to taste the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, the, the words for good and evil are tov. You might have heard of mazel tov or mazel tov. It just means good in Hebrew and ra. So the, what the purported value of this fruit was to Adam and Eve was that they would be able to discern between tov and ra. They would be able to tell the difference and know. In their quest to understand that, they were assisted, quote-unquote, assisted by the serpent. And the serpent, as it's described in Genesis, I believe it's chapter 3, was crafty or cunning, depending on your translation. The word for that cunning and craftiness is arum in Hebrew. Now, in uh, in Proverbs, I believe it's chapter 8, where wisdom is mentioned as having sort of a feminine personification or incarnation, uh, pr- the word prudence is used there, and prudence is sort of uh, a proxy word for the ability to choose. So what this serpent was showing was the same thing that uh, Solomon would later write in the book of Proverbs that we should show, which is this ability to look for the difference between tov and ra. Solomon, when he was at, he was given the choice by God, what gift do you want out of anything in the whole world? I, I, will, I will give you whatever you ask. And he asked for this same discerning between Tov and Ra. He asked for wisdom. Now, there's something interesting about that word knowledge. When you want to, you, you don't just want to discern between Tov and Ra. You want to know them. And the biblical idea of knowing uh, is is not just an intellectual exercise. And if you want proof of that, remember that in order to conceive children, it, it talks about how Adam knew his wife. This word was the same word that was used for intercourse. And so it's a very, uh, it's something that has to do with experience, with, with touching, with grasping. To know good and evil meant to experience, experience them from top to bottom, the same way that Adam knew his wife, and she begat Cain, and she begat Abel, and she begat Seth, etc. So what Adam and Eve did was they chose to take this knowledge for themselves rather than to depend on God for the knowledge. That is the story of the, the fall the choice that preceded the fall, the transgression itself, was that in one case they were taking the knowledge, and in the other case they were they would have been submitting to God's wisdom. To I'm sorry, submitting to God's judgment. So the taking of knowledge and the substituting of our own will for the will of God, that's folly, and uh, folly incidentally is also personified in the book of Proverbs. That doesn't mean that the ancient Jews believed there was an actual deity, there was an actually actual being that had uh, that represented folly, that there was some, some sort of spirit that they could worship that represented folly, and there was some spirit that represented wisdom. 
But there was a Lady Wisdom, uh, not necessarily known as Lady, but called She, uh, in the book of Proverbs, and there was a Lady Folly. So uh, wisdom is actually, the as, you, as we can kind of see illustrated here, wisdom is actually the personification of choice. It is that choice between whether we are going to take knowledge for ourselves of the world around us or whether we are going to rely on the judgment of God. Uh, one other thing that's interesting that in the, in the book of Proverbs is mentioned that uh, a priceless woman, I, th- I believe it's in chapter 31 of Proverbs later on, a woman uh, of valor or ability, who can find such a woman? Oh, if you were to find a woman that uh, has this, this, this valor, this ability, this knowledge about the world, she's worth more than jewels. She's a priceless woman. The only other woman described as priceless is Lady Wisdom. So the idea being brought across here is that a man who would find such a woman would be brought back to a state of grace or to an Eden-like existence. Basically, finding such a priceless gift is like reversing the effects of the fall. So, Michael, I hope that answers your question. The, the basic idea is that the ancient Jews had to have names for the different aspects of God, but that didn't mean they thought there was a different entity. Uh, this this part, this wisdom, this idea of wisdom, if, if the word is that part of God which you can understand and interface with, then wisdom is that part of God which can live inside you and inspire you to make wise choices, good choices. Um, if you want to know more about this, you can. here's something you can Google. So I, I, I relied on uh, a popular podcast for a lot of the information in this question, and that podcast is The Bible Project. So if you Google Bible Project, Lady Wisdom, Lady Folly, then you should be brought to their episode on that very topic, and you can and you can hear more. It's about an hour long, so there's there's plenty of information there that I wasn't able to convey. Everyone, thank you for all your questions. Thank you for listening to Gospel Doctrine. I appreciate all of you, and I am so grateful that I get to share with you my love of the Scriptures. I look forward to studying with you the Book of Mormon, and I leave this with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.